Well, good morning, church. It's an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you today. We're going to be in 1 Peter if you want to get there. And we're coming into a busy season at the church. I think January we have conferences and men's and women's retreats and maybe the women's retreat, not in January, but it's things are piling up. But I want y'all to know that this week we have a group of young people, uh, young adults and uh, that are traveling to Atlanta to go to the Passion Conference. There you go. You got some right there. We're going to be taking 16 young adults to, to go, and it's going to be a great time in the Lord. But be praying for them as they travel, because Atlanta is a long way away that the Lord would, would send them there, would bring them back, and that uh, they would all each experience the Lord. So let's pray, and we'll dive right in. God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our church. God, I pray that we would not be filling our time with busyness, but we would be doing things that would be pursuing you, and that you would honor that, and you would speak to us, you would reveal yourself to us, you would grow us, into the image of your son so that we would shine your light into this lost and dying world. Lord, I pray for protection over these young people as they travel. And Lord, I pray that they have a good time. Please speak to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're going to be in 1 Peter 4. And we're coming up on the end of our series, Living for What Lasts. And I'm praying. I don't know what the next one is. Uh, I'm asking the Lord to lead us. So if you'll be make that a matter of prayer. But this series is called Living for What Lasts because we know what lasts are the things of God, the kingdom of God, and that's what we want to pursue with our lives. So just a reminder, because it's been a little bit, Peter is writing a letter to be circulated among churches throughout the Roman Empire, and these churches are they're, they're facing um, persecution. These Christians are facing cruelty, social, economic, political suffering is, is what's coming their way. And Peter's writing to them, telling them to get their mind right, preparing them for what's to come. This is a letter that shows us how to live this called out life for Jesus. Our passage this morning is what everybody wants to listen to. It's telling us how we are to suffer well. So here's what's true. God uses suffering for your good and for his glory. You're like, Cody, we've had that's what is true before. Yes, because when you're in suffering, that's too late a lot of times to hear this. We need it to be ingrained in our heart so that when we, when we are facing suffering, when we are facing trials, we'll, we'll remember this truth, that God uses our suffering for our good and for his glory. So what do we do with suffering? You, we can use the trial and the suffering as an opportunity to rejoice in and worship Jesus as a witness to the world of the hope that's inside of you. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. 
So starting in 1 Peter 4.12, if you don't have a Bible in your hand, there's, the text will be on the screen. Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of God and of uh, the, the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let no one of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as Christians, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, uh, let, let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. So the first thing we're going to look at is in verse 12, when trials come. Peter, he's building on this idea that God is using suffering and that there's a certain way he desires for us to respond to suffering. Peter then gives us the command, and he says, do not be surprised. This is the command, church. Don't be surprised. When what? At fiery trials, when it comes upon you to test you. We're not to find it confusing or surprising when things happen. When you find yourself in a trial, when you find yourself in suffering, the Bible's telling you don't be surprised. A popular false teaching in Christianity is that it's not God's will that Christians should suffer. Well, that flies in the face of the text. Suffering for a believer is not an if, but a when. Suffering for unbelievers is not an if, but a when. The prosperity movement in Christianity teaches God's will for you is to be wealthy and happy, and anything else is because of your lack of faith and because of your sin. Well, let's carry that thought out with Jesus, our example, right? This means that Jesus either had a lack of faith or sin, because the, Jesus, he's a poor man. Jesus, Jesus, we just celebrated the manger thing. He didn't have a bed to lay in. He laid in a, sta in a stable where they fed animals. He, he's known as the man of sorrow and suffering in the Old Testament. Jesus was neither wealthy, nor was he uh, a person who didn't experience suffering. Prosperity preaching denies, in essence, the life of Jesus. Now, this makes us feel uncomfortable to say, but when you encounter suffering or trials, was it God's will that Jesus suffered? Yeah, he started telling us in Genesis 3.15 and kept telling us all throughout the Old Testament. 
It was God's will that Jesus suffer. And God is sovereign. That means he's in control of all things. And that your suffering is totally within the will and the allowance of God. Why do we not hear this in church? Why do we not necessarily lean in and tell somebody this when they're hurt and when they're suffering? Because it makes us feel uncomfortable. It, it, it makes us feel uncomfortable to say that because we know that, that a lot of the suffering that's in the world, it's bad. When we find ourselves in a bad situation, we say things, or maybe you're more holy than me, but I say things like, I don't deserve this, or why is this happening to me? Or, now this is an inside thought, I didn't do anything, this just isn't fair. Look at how this person over here is living. Why aren't they suffering like I'm suffering? We start comparing. These are natural responses but answers like this, questions like this, misunderstand God and the nature of suffering. The Bible devotes a lot of time to answering these questions about trials and sufferings. And we desperately, as humans, we want to make sense of suffering. And God knows this, so in the Bible, he does not shy away. I just think a lot of times we just don't like his answer. So, for instance, Habakkuk, I know that's a book of the Bible you've all poured over, right? But Habakkuk's a really interesting book because he's experiencing suffering. He's, uh, the Babylonians have came in, Israel, uh, because they've sinned for a long time, they're now in captivity. He, the, the, the city's destroyed. The, these evil people are doing bad things to the Israelites. And he has these four things he says against God. He puts God on trial in the book. The first thing he says is in uh, chapter 1, 1 through 11, God, where were you when I needed you? Does that sound like anything you would ask? Why do bad things happen to good people? 1, 12 through uh, 2, 4. Why do good things happen, or why, why do good things happen to bad people? Will I make it through this trial? These are all the things we're asking when things are, are going awry, right? When we find ourselves in suffering. Ultimately, God does defend himself to Habakkuk and tells himself that he's just. He tells, him, he tells Habakkuk, I'm going to work all these things out. This is all within my plan. This is all within my control. I'm sovereign. But the righteous... You need to worry, I'm going to worry about my job. You worry about your job. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's the answer we get in suffering as well. Like God's got his side, walk by faith. That doesn't really just necessarily give me the warm fuzzies. It does that God has his side, but I have more questions, right? The book of Job deals with a similar question. Instead of being oppressed by Babylonians and seeing his country and people in ruin, Job loses all of his family and all of his wealth in a single day. Job has a physical affliction that he had, like these giant boils all over his body. And he's just in emotional and physical misery. 
the, bo- the, the bulk of the book of Job is him talking to his friends who these guys are supposed to be men of wisdom. And if you've ever read the book of Job, you'll know like chapter one is super interesting. Chapter 38 is really cool. And then there's a lot of stuff going on in between that's super confusing. And it's because it's a dialogue between these four people. It's, uh, or five people, Job and um, his four friends. Only one of them is right. But God allows them to pontificate like, like what we see in um, politics, right? They just go make these long, elaborate speeches and nobody really corrects what they're saying. But basically the, the, the base of all their belief was that only the good people prospered while sinners were punished. Job lost his children. Job lost his possessions. Therefore, Job must have done evil. While the logical syllogism is sound, the information is off. Job, also, while all this is going on, he's accusing God of being unfair while defending himself. And in chapter 37, or uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 38, all their conjecture is now answered by God. It says, and God knelt and answered me. And it's amazing. God does not explain any of it to Job. Now, we as a reader, we know in chapter one that Satan goes and challenges God. He's like, if you take all the good stuff away from Job, Job will curse you. And God doesn't tell Job any of that. Matter of fact, he rebukes Job and he rebukes his friends. Here's the answer that he gives Job. Did I need your counsel when I created the universe? Did I need your counsel when I separated the waters from the sea or the, the waters from the land? Nope. Did I need your, do, do you know where I've put the, uh, the snow, where I store snow? Do you know anything about the Leviathan? Do you know about anything of, of the de- depths of the ocean? I, I didn't seek your counsel in that and I'm not seeking your counsel now. That's the answer. <laughs> he says, Job, the things that go, are going on in the world are far larger and complex than you understand. And I've got it. I'm ruling. I'm taking care of it. And Job, his friends, for their false views of, of his suffering... God commanded that they all repent and go apologize to Job. And they did. Another type of suffering we see is in John 9. Jesus is asked about this blind man and what's the cause of his suffering. The Jews wanted to blame it on the sin of his parents or the sin of the boy even though, or the man, even though he was blind from birth. I don't know how that makes sense. Unless God's just like looking out in the future. He's like, you're going to sin, so you're blind now. But this is, what, uh, this is how the conversation goes in John 9, 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man, uh, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus heals his sight. 
Physical affliction could be punishment from God for sin. We see that in the Bible. But do you know how we know that that's the case in the Bible? Because the Bible tells us so. And I, wanna, I really want to warn you, don't be quick to blame someone's physical ailments or physical afflictions on sin to look good. To, to sound spiritual, to act like you know what's going on. Frankly, it's what you see condemned all the way through 1 Corinthians with wanting to be the super apostle, wanting to, wanting to be more spiritual than everybody else. But it's disgusting. It's hurtful. And because of your ignorance, when you say something like that, this person's going to carry that for years. Shut your mouth. If it's in the, if it's in the pages of Scripture, confidently say that. But don't conjecture about someone's ailment. It's mean-hearted. God can use any of it to move us to trust him with our pain and sorrow. So I try to give you a, a survey of a couple different types of suffering you see. In the case of Habakkuk, he was experiencing and watching suffering that was caused by others. That's a real thing that we see. And God does allow you and he allows me to suffer because of things other people have done. Why? The Bible tells us in Genesis 3, because of the fall, because sin's in the world. He allows it, and if, if somehow he's like, all right, hey, nobody else is suffering because anybody else is evil, he's going to have to take all the evil out of the world, right? And that means the world's over. He's allowing it for a time, even at the expense of other people hurting. It doesn't make us comfortable, but it's true. For, jo for Job, for Job... God uses his intense pain and suffering to refine Job's faith. That's what God's doing there. As for the blind person, um, Jesus allowed his suffering, God allowed his suffering so that God would be glorified in healing him. I mean, we, we spent, what, three months going through the book of Ruth or two months going through the book of Ruth. She experienced devastating trials her and Naomi, right? Why did God allow all the trials? Because he had a plan of how he was going to bring Jesus to earth through the lineage of Ruth. This is a passage you need to, to hold on to for, for dear life. And it's Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You can trust God with your suffering because he, promise, he promises that he's going to work all things together for your good, for those who love him. God, I like how uh, John Piper talks about suffering. He says that God won't waste one ounce of your suffering. God has a plan, and it's for your good, even if it does not feel like it in the moment. So let's look back at verse 12. It says this, Excuse me. Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening 
to you. What are these fiery trials that we're talking about here? Is, is he saying, hey, Rome, it's about to heat up. It's about to get worse. Well, maybe because it did, but he's going back to this illustration of the refiner's fire that we saw in 1 Peter 1.6. You'll remember it says this, In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You see the same language. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, um, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These trials have a purpose, and that is to refine us. Yes, they hurt. The text acknowledges that they grieve us, but when they're over, our faith will be refined, more precious than gold. The result that we're told in 1 Peter 1.7 is that it will benefit us in the way that we worship Christ, in the way that we honor Christ, in the way that we live. When you refine a precious metal, what you do is you put the, the metal into a fire. And when it gets really heated up, the impurities come to the top. And then the, the smith, um, what he'll do is he'll take and he'll pull off, if it's silver, the dross. He'll pull, he'll pull off that impurity. He'll take it out. He'll start forming it into the image that he wants. And guess what he does again? Back in the fire. Heats up. What happens when he heats it up? More impurities come to the top. He pulls it back out. Do you think this happens in like two, two times? He's, he has to stick it in multiple times, various trials. He, the, the, the metal's placed in the fire over and over and over by the master smith to remove the impurities. Don't be surprised at getting put in the fire because the master smith He's molding you. He's removing the impurities from you. Because when we go into fiery trials, what often rises to the top, what's our first response normally isn't great, or at least mine's not. And it's an opportunity for the Lord to remove that from us. Do not be surprised at fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you. That testing is that same idea of testing the, the, the purity of silver or gold as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be, it's, it's not strange. That's the process. Trials are God's process for, uh, for him molding us into his image. Trials are not an if, but a when. So many people want to walk away from the faith because things get hard, but it's telling you things will be hard. If it, for a Christian to be like, oh my gosh, I didn't, it's not supposed to be this way. You're not reading the book, man. I like what Charles Spurgeon has to say. He's an old pastor, but he's characterized by suffering and trial. He says, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. How could he say something like that? Because when, when things are good, 
Are you on your knees every day? Like, we hope so. But when we're in suffering and when we're in trials, we cling to Christ. We depend on him in a very different way. And if you acknowledge that that suffering that you're going to will send you to Jesus and will be for your benefit in the end, that totally changes everything. Let's look now at verses 13 through 16. Finding blessing in suffering. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let no one of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And I'm just going to insert gossip. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In Christ, we're, we're in this new kingdom. We're, we're now new citizens. We're, we're now citizens of this new kingdom. This ethic that we are to live under is totally backwards to the ethic of the world. And we're given a command here that's totally different than what our initial response would be to suffering. What's the command? Rejoice. Rejoice. Re rejoice. My, my response to suffering and to pain and to trials is to recoil. My, my response is to, to re is, is to react, not to rejoice. And this isn't, this isn't like a suggestion like, hey, it would be better for you if you rejoiced. But if you look at the, the language here, this, this word rejoice is an imperative command. There's no question about it. This is God commanding you like he's commanding you on Sinai. He's commanding you to rejoice in suffering. Why would God command rejoicing in suffering? Well, let's, let's stop for a second before we answer that. I want you to understand he doesn't say that you have to pretend that it's not going on. He doesn't say you can't be grieved. He doesn't say you can't be hurt. He doesn't say you can't be scared. Let's look at the perfect man, Jesus Christ, the God man, right? Jesus, when Lazarus died, come on, everybody's memorized this verse. What did he do? Jesus wept. He was grieved. He was hurt. When he went to the garden of Gethsemane the night before, or the night of his arrest, He's sweating drops of blood. Medically, this is a condition that's caused by stress. The thing's coming. He knew what was coming. God didn't have to ask him, like, hey, can you just pretend like you're not about to get crucified and beat? No, he, he knew what was coming. He, there was stress, intense stress. Jesus was physically hurt, but... Think about how emotionally hurt he probably felt at one of his best friends for three years turning his back on him and selling him for 30 pieces of silver. Or what about the people who were uh, praising him when he came in a couple days before? They turned their backs on him and, and cried for Barabbas, the murderer. God's not telling you to deny feelings during trials. That's... that's He's, he's not asking you to act like it doesn't hurt when you're hurting. 
Instead, he's commanding you to rejoice in it and to worship in it. Worship and rejoicing will set your heart on something bigger than your situation. God. Why did we find in chapter 2 that Jesus could endure the suffering that was set before him? Do y'all remember in 1 Peter 2? It was because he entrusted his soul to God who judges justly. Verse 19, it's telling us the same thing in the passage that we're in today. The reason why we can do this is because we need to entrust our souls to God who judges justly. Our God has a plan for your good. Even though you're suffering, he promises to work all things out for those who love him. Worship reminds us of something bigger than us. Let's think practically why it would be good for us to worship in pain. Let's, let's think about it. It makes us think about something bigger than us. It makes us think about God. But your pain, when, when you're in pain, it feels like the biggest thing in the world, doesn't it? But worship puts pain in perspective. Worship reminds you that you have a God who's not far off. Matter of fact, our God is, is a God who, when his people are in pain and in suffering, he draws close. James 4.8 tells us to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. God is there and ready and willing to comfort you all the way through the trial if you would draw near with your heart. Worship beats back bitterness, jealousy, and rage. In suffering, we grow bitter if we are not worshiping. Bitterness is the death of spirituality, church. Bitterness is the death of spirituality. Bitterness drives out hope. Bitterness blinds the heart to God's goodness and to the people around you. Bitterness also drives us to jealousy. We can always find someone more worthy of suffering than us and to make the case on how God's being unjust towards us. Bitterness and jealousy drive us to rage. Take an honest look at yourself. Would you say that you're a person who's quick-tempered? Are you a person who's easily bothered? Are you a person that... that lashes out at people? And do you say things often that you wish you had not? There's a lot of ways that you can defend these actions and blame it on somebody else. But let's be real. Any defense you give is just putting lipstick on a pig. You, you, it's still a pig. It's still sin. It's still anger. If you said yes to any of that, I want you to know that you have an anger problem and that you're walking in sin and you have to stop making excuses. And I believe if you dig deep enough, in most cases, the root of these actions is unresolved pain. If you don't worship in suffering, there is a potential that you'll walk in bitterness, that you'll walk in jealousy, that you'll walk in anger and rage for years, worship beats back bitterness. Worship beats back jealousy. Worship beats back anger. 
Suffering should drive us to worship. And suffering's going to drive you to somebody's arms, either the arms of God or the arms of the, the evil one. Let's take the importance of this command just one step further. Think about the negative impact of explosive emotions, what they'll have on the relationships that are closest to you. You'll be a person who always feels like you're getting the short end of the deal. Do you, do you always feel like someone's out to get you? Like when you, when you uh, are getting ready to make a big purchase, you go in there like, they're going like, to, I, I got to get mine. They're, they're going to get me. They're, 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 they're working an angle. Do you, do you feel like that the people at work are always trying to get you? That's not of God. And when you live this way, the outcome is you're going to be a person that your closest relationships, you're always going to be guarded because you're afraid they're trying to get you. You're going to be jealous of the ones, uh, of your loved one's relationships that they have. And what you're going to do is you're going to end up driving your loved ones away. Your outburst will make it to where people are, are so scared to get close to you because they never know which you they're going to get. Repent. If you walk away from worship and rejoicing into bitterness, there's a good chance that these actions are going to cause in irreparable damage to the relationships that are in your life. And I think we can all see people in our lives who have lived this way for a long time that they're very alone. Or that it's like, why don't you talk to your family? It's because of these things. Not to mention, all of these things are at odds with the Holy Spirit, the relationship that you need the most. And if you're walking in bitterness, if you're walking in jealousy, if you're walking in anger, your relationship with the Holy Spirit, whom we must abide with, the text talks about him being grieved. Your relationship with him is going to be strained if you have a relationship at all. Repent. Here's the deal. Like, I know I've used this illustration before, but we have a God who, when you are walking in sin, he's not walking away from you, even though you feel like you're walking away from him. If you stop and repent and you turn your face, you know what you're going to see? You're going to be nose to nose with a God who's ready and willing to forgive you. Don't, don't let these things define your life. The primary meaning of this passage is talking about suffering for Jesus, but I think it applies to all suffering because when we display joy in suffering, it shows that we believe that God is real. And when you're in suffering and you're worshiping God, even though you're acknowledging how bad it is, the lost people around you, they're going to be drawn to you like a moth to the flame. And the Holy Spirit, when you're suffering in this way and you're worshiping in him, he's going to shine brightly and the lost and dying around you are going to want to know about the hope that is within. That you can entrust your soul, you can entrust your body, you can entrust your life to a God who will judge justly, even though maybe your body's failing and you're losing your life. You know that you'll forever be in the arms of a Savior. That's a compelling message to a world that is walking in suffering. God uses our pain for our good and for his glory. Look back at verse 14. 
says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. If you're insulted for the name of Jesus, you don't have to get defensive. It's not a debate stage where you're getting points for the quippiest, meanest thing you say back. Who's our defender? Who's the author and defender of the faith? Is it you? It's Jesus. Jesus has got this. We can trust a God who will judge justly. Now, always be ready to give a defense, those things. But he's telling you, if that's happening to you, that is a blessing. This goes for you if you're standing trial for your faith, or maybe you're being made fun of in a classroom for what you believe. Maybe you can relate to being insulted for your faith by your family living out what you claim. Maybe, maybe you're the, the, the one at Christmas that everyone always makes the sideways comments about because um, you're, you're trying to be a Christian instead of just being a cultural Christian. Maybe you feel that animosity from your family. It's okay because we, we trust a God who's going to judge justly. God is telling you to count all these things as a blessing. Let's look on to verse 15. God's showing you uh, how not to suffer, but let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler or I'm going to say a gossip there. And we've already talked at length about this, so I'm not going to dive very far into it. But don't be the cause of your suffering. That's not what this is talking about. If your mouth walks you into a beating, there's no blessing for that. Maybe the blessing is on the other side. You'll learn to keep your mouth shut. But that's not what this is talking about. We need to be sober-minded and we need to be self-controlled. That kind of suffering is shameful. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed when you face trials for Jesus' name. Don't be ashamed at the mocking. Don't be ashamed because you know that this light momentary affliction is fleeting and there will be a day that will never end that we will stand in the arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19 very quickly. Trust your body and your soul to God's plan. For it's time uh, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Verse 17 talks about this household of faith. He's talking about the church. And I could see how someone would interpret this as the punishment of the church for all the things that they're doing and negatively doing, but I don't think that this is what this is talking about. I think this is talking about the purification of the church, not the punishment of the church, because I feel like he's carrying on this idea of testing and going through the refiner's fire. This time of judgment, again, it's not necessarily about the punishment of sin. I think this judgment is what would happen when a smith would put a piece of gold in the fire after he's done it for a long time and pulled it out. He's going to eventually make a judgment about the genuineness of the gold, right? I think this is what it's talking about is this purification of 
the people in the church. God desires to purify the church, and he uses trials and suffering to do it. So what do we do with verse 18? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I looked at that for a long time this week. What is that talking about? Well, it's a, it's a citation from Proverbs 11.31. And you'll notice that the words are different because he's citing from the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. So that's what's going on there, but this is how it reads there. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more will the wicked and the sinner? I don't think he's trying to change the meaning, but just simply... What, we're barely saved, scarcely saved? Yeah. If Jesus, the God-man, did not come to earth, did not stretch his arms out on the cross, did not allow the, the sinful men who he created to kill him on that cross, would salvation be available? We're scarce. We're barely, like, we, like without that happening, we have no chance. But God did. And we are being tested on earth. We're being rewarded for good works and bad works on earth. But in heaven, all that's been paid for. But for the sinner, that person has to deal with what they've done on earth. They get rewarded on earth. That God gives good gifts to, to even the sinner. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to understand, you will be destroyed on that last day. You will forever have to face the, the wrath of your sin in a place called hell. But thanks be to God that he sent his son to suffer for us and allow us to have salvation. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It is God's will that while we suffer, that we continue to do good. This is the conclusion of everything he said in verse, is verse 19. And as we continue to do good, I want us to set our eyes on the example of Christ. Look at the screen. You know, the word amen means let it be so. At the end of this, if this can be so for you, I'd, I'd ask that you say amen. 1 Peter 2, 21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. So we clearly know what the will of God is, that you would follow whatever steps are coming. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Amen, church?
I'm going to pray, and Brandon's going to come up and lead us in the last song, but if you're going through suffering and trial, I would love to pray with you. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, I'm going to be down front. But I pray that we fixate our, our thoughts, especially in our suffering, on the shepherd and overseer of our soul, the one who's going to judge justly.